The earlier session set a, a context of urgency, pace, and climate diplomacy. <clears throat> and I think we ventilated some of the key issues there. We now turn our attention in this session, to, I suppose, more to the how. What do we need to do? Um, what the kind of trans transformation trajectories need to be if we need to hit the targets? Um, and actually, is the timing that's been talked about the right one? Um, the focus of, uh, or the lever for transformation that we're looking at in this session is digitalization. But obviously, there's a whole spectrum that we mean by digitalization, and I'm sure that will come out in the discussion. Um, and it's not simply just about energy, but I, I know our contributors will uh, say, say a few words about that. Again, as I did in the last session, I'd like to bring in the voice of citizens <clears throat> into the discussion. So there should be a quote coming up from, there he goes, in, uh, in Belgium. So I think that finding a solution is the easier part of trying to stop or at least slow down climate change. The problem lays within countries who are not really willing to put effort in the agreement. I think many people always make other priorities instead of, being, instead of beating climate change until it is too late. What we do know in terms of digital is that 90% of the data in the world that we now have today was created only in the past two years. Uh, and we know that, you know, uh, more than 3.5 billion people or half the global population now have access to the internet. And we have mobile phone usage in extreme areas of poverty, whether it's in Africa or in India, uh, and, well, and we have modern technology working in a different way in the North um, and the West. Um, so, as I turn to you, Helen, in your report, your, your last report, you say that the next 10 to 15 years are a unique use it or lose it moment in economic history. So tell us, uh, from your perspective, um, how do we accelerate action? Thanks very much, Darmendra. And uh, I think this follows on very nicely from the previous panel. Um, we do say that the next 10 to 15 years are, uh, are a unique use it or lose it moment. And partly that is just because of the developments we see happening over this period. We will probably double um, infrastructure on the ground today over that period. If you take all the buildings, all the roads, everything, we're going to be doubling infrastructure. Now, if we get that right, that will be fantastic. It will deliver cities where we can move and breathe, energy systems with access to all, water systems, et cetera. Um, if we get that wrong, we get it very, very wrong. And Daniela outlined in the previous panel how wrong that could be. Now, what we see is that there's incredible opportunities before us to really get it right in practice. And we've got a lot of examples of where we're seeing successes on the ground. And, and I'll mention two which link into the digitalization um, uh, question in a moment. But first, in terms of the overall message, what we found is that between now and 2030, if we move to a green growth path, a low carbon path, we could actually realize net economic benefits in excess of $26 trillion globally. Frank mentioned it before, but this is the first time ever we've really identified such enormous economic benefits because we're in a different world today. The technologies are cheaper, they're more available, we have solutions we didn't have before. So huge economic benefits. Beyond that, there would be benefits in terms of jobs, uh, 65 million new low-carbon jobs in 2030. That's basically the workforce of the UK and Egypt today. Mm -hmm. So it's enormous. 
Um, we'd also have health benefits, uh, 700,000 less premature deaths in 2030, and um, there'd be a lot of other benefits as well. Mm -hmm. So there's an opportunity. Some of the technologies and developments we're seeing that can help um, do link in very much to digitalization and how people, individuals, civil society are starting to engage. So two examples, one from the land use area. I want to highlight, it's something called the Global Forest Watch platform, which basically is this new platform, well, not that new, it's been around for a few years now, but it's a new uh, approach uh, where we've taken uh, digital data information um, from satellite systems on what's happening in forests around the world on almost near real time, and have worked with partners like Google and with the satellite companies and, and major, um, uh, major companies to translate that into an open, online, free and accessible platform where anybody can track what's happening in terms of deforestation. Now this has enabled companies to come forward, consumer goods companies to come forward and make commitments saying that they can commit to 100% deforestation free supply chains. Why can they do that? Because they can track down to the level of individual farms, which are producing palm oil or soy or beef for them, they can track whether there's deforestation going on there. So they are able to make these commitments. Beyond that, we have citizens, we have civil society who are able to actually track this online. So they are able to use that and, and publish reports and blogs and commentary about companies which they think aren't living up to their commitments. We've even seen governments using this, and in Indonesia, they use this platform to actually persecute some of the, those who actually stored, started forest fires. So it's a new digital platform which is making data available at the right time, almost near real time, um, to everybody in a way that we can really transform how we can uh, manage deforestation, how we can halt deforestation in tropical forests around the world. The other example I wanted to highlight was from the energy system area. And again, this is, you know, builds on some of the comments from Melanie. Um, in the first session, we're seeing some really incredible, innovative new uh, systems in place, for example, in rural Africa and rural India, where you get, um, uh, particularly where you're looking at, at, at communities, where low-income communities, where you don't have access, for example, to a bank account or to credit, um, but most cases they do have mobile phones. So in fact, in Sub-Saharan Africa, 17% of the population is connected to an electricity grid, only 17%. But 70% of people have mobile phones, mm. right? So you've got this new system, you've got the mobile phones, we've really leapfrog over what we've done in Europe and, and the West in terms of developments, completely different. So they've set up pay-as-you-go systems where they're able to get um, uh, solar home systems where they can actually start to do things like uh, have lights uh, which are healthier for them. They don't contribute to air, indoor air pollution. The lights enable children or women to read, uh, to be able to get education, uh, to be able to develop. They, they, these new systems are able to do small businesses, electrification for small businesses. And even if you don't have a bank account or credit, you're able to pay for it through your uh, mobile phone. It's a pay-as-you-go system. And so as a result, we've seen there's more than 800,000 uh, pay-as-you-go solar systems now in, uh, in the world. And in one of the examples, there's something called MCOPA, um, which is one of the biggest, uh, house, biggest companies, and they estimate that this system for each household has saved about 750 US dollars because of avoided costs of kerosene, and it's eliminated 1.3 tons of CO2 over the first four years for each. 
Um, this is particularly exciting to me as well because there's good, ex good, uh, good results in terms of women's empowerment as well mm -hmm. in a lot of these communities. And we've seen that in India, but also again in Africa. There's a project called Solar System, which is a women-led uh, social enterprise uh, system operating in Nigeria, Tanzania, and Uganda. Um, and their mission is really to deliver uh, eradication of poverty by activating women's social networks. So the women are brought in and trained and sell and deliver the clean energy services. So that's really helped to shift uh, the prospect of women in those communities. So some good examples which really bring in the people to be able to use sure. the new technologies and deliver uh, solutions which are cheaper and cleaner than we've seen before. Indeed. So you, what you're really pointing to is that the, the potential for digital to have a kind of a whole system, whole society impact, which I know it's easy to say, but actually there is what you're, the examples you're citing are really clearly that actually use the devices that are available already, i.e. Mm -hmm. mobile phones, mm -hmm. and use that smart technology, but also being able to really think it through in terms of deforestation, even crop growth, and uh, the examples you haven't touched upon, yeah, but it's absolutely the case in terms of crop growth and et cetera, and farming has huge implications. I suppose, <coughs> not for you to answer this right now, but for you to think about, because I want to move on to Luke. Yep. Um, is whether, what is it therefore we need to do to ensure the policy environment actually adapts itself to what you've spoken about? But on that note, I want to turn to you, Luke, because, um, you know, from an industry perspective, it's, it's clear the impact of, the, of, of, you know, digitalization and energy, absolutely. And what I want to hear from you is whether you think the, the policy environment is in step, not only with digitalization, but is it in step with the movement you're involved in, in terms of your business model? Well, in fact, what I would like to, to, to start with is maybe have a look back to, to what we've been seeing happening over the last few years. Okay. Uh, I started working in renewables in the middle of the 90s as a young engineer, and we did a lot of developments on wind and solar, and then we saw all these uh, opportunities coming up and all these different mechanisms to support these projects. Uh, we started off with uh, the system of uh, green certificates with feed-in tariffs, and then we had support by um, by, for example, contracts for difference. And in the end, uh, what we see now is a lot more auctions. And, and we've seen that everywhere around the world. And these auctions are indeed very good. They bring a lot of competition. They bring a very strong push on the cost of renewable energy, bringing it down. Uh, a lot of push for new developments to be the first runner uh, when you bid for a project. But we see it comes with quite some risks as well. Uh, on projects we've seen, for example, in Mexico on solar, but also on wind in Argentina, uh, quite a lot of those projects which have won the auctions finally did not get built for simple reasons that they use technologies which were just not mature enough to be financed externally and so the developers couldn't make uh, their the, the wishes come through. We even saw that honestly here in Europe. Uh, offshore wind, one of the, the flagships of our uh, renewable development, when the first auctions were won in Germany without any subsidy mechanism related to that, one of the feedback we got from uh, Orstedt quite publicly, uh, Dong at the time, was that they would never build those projects if there wouldn't be a framework allowing a merchant market that is in line with their investments. Mm. So th those policies are very good and bringing those auctions is, is, is good, but it's not the kind of support you want to get really started with new technologies. So if we have a look now, mm. we would be very much in, in supportive of, of thinking back on going back to feed-in systems or contracts for difference or mechanisms that, that give us sufficient 
risk control on the investments we're making on new technologies, and we're thinking about uh, large-scale storage, and I'll come back to that because it's not only about uh, electricity storage, about green hydrogen, about marine energy, about biogas, which are technologies where now you probably need a more controlled, more push, pushy system to go uh, forward. Within those new technologies in the energy field, uh, which is, of course, where NG is uh, active uh, most of the time, we would like to emphasize the importance of storage, but not only the electrical part, but also the pumped storage solutions, but also alternatives for lithium-ion, and that becomes a kind, kind of a geopolitical play as well, as we heard from the previous speakers, it's about uh, resources on that. Um, we think that there's a lot more storage which can be um, in a quite typical technical solution for typical solution that is needed to, to, to bring an answer to. I also would like to emphasize the importance of energy communities, which is a bit of a variant of the microgrids, if you want, microgrids of violence, which we talked about in the mm. first session. Mm. But those microgrids can play a very, very attractive and important role in the distribution system and in the transmission system. We've been doing some test cases with local energy communities where the people have those mobile phones following up on their consumption and their production and how they share it with their neighbors. And not only it brings a very big community feel on a social network in the end on energy, but also we saw that technically this was reducing the load on the grid on which that microgrid was connected to with about 15 to 20 percent. Now that's a big deal. Mm. That's a lot of extra uh, room for renewables and intermittent systems, for example. Another point that I would like to make is that we at Inji, we are quite favorable of not seeing the two worlds, electricity and gas, as separate worlds. These are worlds which can be very much integrated one into another and play a supportive role one to the other. In fact, gas world can be a huge buffer for the electricity world if we get those connections right and these technologies up and running. And gas itself will be crucial in the transformation steps we see in the coming years to full uh, decarbonization. Not only in the first step as a switch from coal to gas, which is clear, which is obvious, which we should push for fully, there shouldn't be any doubt about that part. But secondly, in the second phase, uh, making your natural gas uh, carbon neutral as well by emphasizing much more on biogas, whether it's through digestion or uh, pyrogasification, whatever. Biogas is a big part of that. And the ultimate answer, which we see uh, by uh, 2030, 2050, should be about green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is a beautiful source based and created by uh, green renewable energy, electricity solutions. It can be an extremely important uh, play for uh, the future. Link to that, and that's my final point, on green mobility, we have kind of the same uh, reflection. It's not only about electric cars, it's also about hydrogen uh, solutions for vans, for buses, for lorries, for ships. And why not in terms for green aviation? Short haul flights by electricity-driven planes is possible in the coming 10 to 15 years. Long haul by hydrogen, it is possible. The technologies are there, and yes, we need to work on that, and yes, they need to be improved, and there's cost issues for the moment, but it is, as such, physically possible. Let us work on that uh, part of green aviation as well. Okay, thank you, thank you for that. Um, but the question still remains in my mind. It, you know, it's in, you know all the examples you have set. Uh, you know, for example, the microgrid. You know, was that as a result of policy conditions, or is that simply the market playing itself out? 
Well, honestly, we, we did it more like a test case and a pilot case to test and, and, and push policy in one or the other direction. Mm. And if there's one roadblock we see on the way mm. is that, the, especially in, in Belgium where we did the, the test case, is that the, 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 the strong split between the transmission, distribution, and production and consumer side, which is part of the liberalization of the market we've known over the last few years, is becoming more of a hinder to that. Mm. So we, don't, we, we, we cannot valorize the force of that microgrid or that energy community sufficiently to make it interesting. So we hope that we could put policies uh, or push policies in that direction. Okay, all right. Let me open it up to the floor, see if people want to react to what, you've, what, what both of you have said so far. Any appetite for questions or queries? on the basis of what you've heard so far? No? Okay, I will come back to you. Uh, let me move on uh, to Bernard. Bernard, uh, again, from your perspective, given, um, you, you know, you're, doing, you're, you're at the heart of, you know, re leading research at EDF, etc. cetera, um, is digital the right lever um, and are the policy conditions right for it to kind of push forward the transition that we need? Well, um, the, the main point I want to stress is that digitalization is really um, a key enabler, perhaps the major enabler for the, the energy transition. Well, the, the reasons are very simple. In fact, our energy world is growing more and more complex. And uh, the key question is how to manage this uh, global complexity. So this complexity relies on, let's say, four, four, four key points. First, we have this uh, big development of uh, renewable energy, uh, PV, wind, with very specific characteristics, variability, and also highly distributed system. So let, 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 let give you some, some figures about what we have in France. At the moment, we have nine gigawatt of PV system, but with 500,000 different installations. So you realize the global impact on the grid. So highly distributed and variable. Second is the conventional generation. Conventional dispatchable regeneration has to move also. It has to evaluate. It has to be, more to be more flexible, to be able to follow the load and uh, to, to be in close connection with the renewable energy. Third is the demand. We have also to manage the, the demand to make it more flexible, allow also it to follow the load for residential customers, for big customers, for industry, and we have new activities to, to open in that respect. Mobility, for, for, for example. And last but not least, the question of the market uh, and the question you raised about the policy. Mm. If we want all this to, to work, in fact, the market is going to be more and more complex. Of course, we have to sell and exchange kilowatt hour, but also kilowatt, that's to say the, the capacity market, and perhaps tomorrow also the question of the flexibility how are we, do we organize all these exchange? And last but not least, we need to provide security of supply to our customers. Even if the system is more complex, at the end, all the customers need electricity, 
and with a good uh, ratio of, of security of supply. They, they, they want to have it, and they don't care about how we produce it. So it means that we have a lot of challenges to address, and digitalization could be of great help for that. Uh, managing the intermittency of, of production, ensuring the, the grid resiliency, um, leveraging also the data. We, we, we generate a lot of, of data, data from the customers, data from uh, our units, data from the grids, and all those data could provide a lot of help in solving the different uh, question I raise. Let, let me give perhaps and finish with a, a short example about uh, electrical mobility. Um, EDF just announced last week a great plan to develop electrical mobility. So for us, the question of electrical mobility is, you know, really a, a transversal, an horizontal new job. In electrical mobility, you have the word mobility, but it's not our current job as a utility. And the word electric, which is our job. And so we have to connect all that. And for us, the, the key question in this respect is the question of smart charging. That's to say, to, to manage the charging of the cars at the right moment of the day. And perhaps also to make the car a help to the grid. You know, if tomorrow we have millions of, of cars on the roads, <coughs> the car are not going to be only cars, but they are going to also to be part of the grid. And so if we want to take profit of this, uh, digitalization and smart charging is key. And in that respect, digitalization means V2G, uh, vehicle to, to grid. That's to say the possibility to have connection in the, in the two ways. And for that, digital, digital systems are key. So within EDF, we decided that we want to have, in the, in the key country in which we are working at the moment, 2,000 uh, smart charging stations by 2022. So it means that we are going to develop all the, the IT system necessary to manage that and to make it, uh, of course, safe for the customer, reliable for the customer, and more important, perhaps, completely transparent for them. What's the role of municipality, local government, in this, in this context that you describe about charging and, uh, and you, know, uh, you know, electrification of uh, mobility? You can't do this alone. No, you're absolutely right. I think that the, the local governments have a key role to play mm. because the, the way the mobility is organized in the city is clearly the, the responsibility of the, of the local government and of the local authorities. Mm -hmm. So it means that the charging point will be placed, will be located at the place which would have been decided by the, by the local authority. And that we will have to cope with the question of the greed and with the question of the, of the charging in that, in that respect. So again, it's a sort of transversal mm -hmm. innovation. Um, we have a lot of uh, stakeholders in that, in that job which need to work together. And perhaps on top of that, we as a utility, we are not going to be the unique one providing electrical mobility for the customers. So it means capability to exchange electricity between different partners, capability for the customers to go from one supplier to another supplier, mm. roaming system. So again, additional complexity. Again, 
need of digital system, again, need of cooperation. Mm. And I, I suppose in the, if we push, push that, if we zoom out into uh, the EU, um, there's been much talk of the digital single market. But when we think about it, the actual single market isn't necessarily a single market. Um, what are your kind of views on the lessons we've learned so far? Because what you've described will require, I'm just thinking of living in Brussels, when you've got you know, the fiefdoms of like 15 mayors that with very different systems, for example, and uh, a lot of power locally. You're having to negotiate all of that to get the kind of situation that you're describing will require gargantuan you know, uh, negotiation. But when you kind of zoom that out, 28 member states, 27 necessarily, potentially next year, then what's your sense of the, the potential positive outcome of trying to really get to the hub of a digital single marketplace? Because that's, that's what will be required for, for you and other businesses. Well, it's a, it's a, a tough question, frankly speaking. Um, EU uh, need to, to, to give really the, the direction. But given the, the complexity I, I describe, uh, the key is really local. Mm. Uh, take an example of the cities. Uh, at the moment, the cities are really taking leading role in the, in the climate change uh, transition. The C40, for example, association, where they are lead, really leading the, the, the game. And if I take again this question of electrical mobility, well, it's really a question of, of cities, of, of government. What we need perhaps at a higher level is uh, a clear view about what the objective is. And I would quote only one point, CO2 price. CO2 price, that, that the key. That, that's to say, to, to give a clear incentive of what we need to clarify and to change and to take into account in all our economic decisions. It means that all the different investors would be able to take the right position because they will be incentivized on this value of CO2. We need a real higher CO2 price. Okay. Do you want to come in on any of this, Lou? I can only support the comment about the carbon okay. price, and I think we're quite aligned on that. Um, as, as, as for the local part, I, I think it's an important remark to, to, to know that most of these initiatives, if they come from a local situation, they are much more supported by the people, and probably it will be happening there uh, before it happens elsewhere. Uh, and we, we are maybe underestimating that effect. If I talk to my, my, my children and their friends, they're quite quite aware of, uh, of the importance of climate change. And maybe to finalize on the, on the electrical mobility, where the Europe, European legislation could play a role is, for example, obliging an open protocol to the car manufacturers to have access to those batteries. Because indeed, they are fantastic systems, storage systems, that can be used in the grid, but a lot of manufacturers for now keep distance and they try to, to shut off their batteries of playing that role as a storage capacity in the grid. And this is where we could oblige one or the other open protocol to be interacting between the grid and have your vehicle acting as a storage device in your system. Interesting. Can I open it up again and make another attempt at engaging you? Um, I'm not suggesting you're bored, but please feel free to engage. Um, Ah, lady right at the back. I will bring you in, sir, and yourself. Thank you. As, as per usual, say who you are, where from. Thank you. Uh, Manon Dufour from E3G. Um, I have a question, actually, to your first speaker, so Helen Mumford. You talked about the significant benefits in terms of jobs of transitioning to kind of a low-carbon society. 
I think the problem we often have in, in kind of policy debate at EU level or national level is that the kind of the jobs that are lost are very concrete and kind of very painful. Um, the new jobs remain in most cases, I mean, we know about kind of clean energy, but remain very abstract. I was going to wonder if you had a few examples for us of kind of the new jobs, new sectors that could be created as a result. Thank you. Great. Can you answer that quite directly? Then I'll go to the other people. We do, see, we do see enormous new opportunities for jobs. As I said, 65 um, uh, million in 2030 alone. Now, a lot of these are in uh, the service sector. We're switching from a high carbon energy intensive uh, economy to something which is more service based. There's also a lot in the construction industry um, and services around that. So for example, around energy efficiency in homes, uh, around uh, obviously some of the renewable energy, but there's a lot more that about energy as a service um, and it's a quite a switch. Now one of the exciting things we found is that these are areas where you actually have a lot of opportunities for women and for youth. And in many countries we have more challenges around uh, women's employment and around youth employment. Mm. So that would also help there. I think one of the things we've highlighted very strongly in this report and our global commission emphasized is the absolute fundamental importance of a just transition. We mm. do need to be very aware that there are industries and sectors that have really helped to power our economies in the past. And we can't leave them behind. We can't leave the individuals behind, the communities behind. And one of the things we did was we tried to pull out examples from around the world where we've seen very good uh, developments around dialogues uh, between trade unions, industries, the government, civil society, to, on how to actually do that just transition. And I actually do have a couple of examples of that. I was going to ask uh, you that, because yeah. that yeah. just preempted my question, because it's really important yeah. to know, where is this happening, the adaptation uh, that's actually, right. that can be pointed to, because that's, good, that's the kind of big, big question. So, so one example from, uh, from Europe, which we're seeing, which is really an exciting one, and one actually from China, mm -hmm. uh, which is quite interesting. In Europe, we have the NL Energy Company uh, in Italy, who is going to be responsible for closing down about 23 coal-powered plants mm -hmm. in the next couple of years. Now, what they've done through dialogues with the workers and with the communities where those coal-fired plants are, are held is actually establish a plan that they will stay in place there. They're not going to desert and run away. And they will either develop renewable energy, if that is, or, or other clean energy sources, if that's viable there. But if it's not, what they're doing is working with the local community and, and universities to develop tech hubs, local tech hubs. So you would have jobs in place. They will work out a transition phase uh, for workers um, and do that together. So that was an exciting one that we've seen recently in Italy. We've also seen some great examples in Alberta, Canada, which is a very fossil fuel based economy, but mm -hmm. they're looking at how they transition. Um, in China, what I wanted to cite is just what we've seen in the current five-year development plan in China. It's, um, it's very interesting. They've taken this absolutely head-on and basically admitted that some of the energy-intensive industries, uh, coal, steel, iron, cement, are over capacity now, is the way they put it. It's, there's too much capacity in the economy, and they will deliberately manage the reduction of that capacity. Um, so they actually put aside, I have a, a number here, they've put aside a 15, $15 billion fund to help support workers um, in the transition from these, from these sectors. But they put that into their five-year development plan. Mm. They said, we need to shrink these sectors 
and we're going to do it in a managed way. Mm. So, and you, I mean, because it makes makes me think that you point to uh, a, an important role the EU could play in terms of creating some sort of co-investment fund between the private sector and the public sector, EU funds, to create the investment pipeline for reskilling and adaptation. And um, let's see if others pick up on that and see if there's anybody from the Commission who can uh, reflect on that. But I think it points to the fact that you do need to have some sort of investment vehicle that helps you transition. When, absolutely, and I think that'd be helpful. I think the other thing that's really critical we're seeing is those local dialogues. Because Indeed. these are place-based, right? It's local communities, and how do you actually help to set up a dialogue which is constructive on the transition? Indeed. Gentleman here. Yes, hello. Uh, Michael Rupp from the European Commission, DG NIR, responsible for connectivity. And I wanted to, um, I was struck by one issue that uh, Mr. By the way, Alex are you thinking said. of creating a joint investment pipeline, by the way, <laughs> given your well, opinion? We, I'll, we'll have to discuss this in terms <laughs> okay, later, right. I think. But, um, Sorry, I had to ask you. No problem. Um, I wanted to uh, engage on something that Mr. Saleh from, from Electricité de France said. Uh, you said uh, in a sort of um, laconic way, uh, they, they, our consumers, don't care how we produce the electricity. And I was a bit struck by that because mm. I wanted to link this to what Mrs. Mountford has said a little earlier when, uh, when she said that with digital information, there's consumer pressure on big industries to change. And uh, I wanted to ask, isn't there enough competition in the French market so that, let's say, renewable energy producers can come up with this? And if there is not, what needs to change le uh, legislatively to do that? And I think that would be quite an interesting, interesting uh, discussion to have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Bernard. Thank you for this uh, very interesting and, and kind <laughs> question. Uh, but well, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you know that the, the French market is completely uh, open and the EU have a, a close look on, on that. And uh, the question is not, um, in fact, the, the competition or, or clean energy. I think we, we have to realize that the, the final customer, its first request is to have electricity and to have a safe uh, electricity de deliver in a, in, a, in a safe way. That, that the key point. On top of that, we have to change. We have to, to cope with climate change and do uh, as much as possible in, in order to reduce the, the CO2 footprint. So for the case of France, well, you probably know that the CO2 emission uh, of EDF are very small at the moment because we um, generate something like 20 gram of CO2 per kilowatt hour, whereas the average EU uh, is about 350 gram per kilowatt hour. So the value is, is good. Nevertheless, we, we want to, to push this uh, low value in all the, the country in which we, we are working. And so for that, the, the transition to renewable is, is key but not renewable only. Uh, I was saying that we need also to move on conventional generation, we need to move on demand, and we need the right incentive about CO2. That's that the big question we are waiting from the EU Commission. Okay, um, there were a few hands up earlier. Right, okay, gentlemen here, then I'll come to you. <clears throat> Thank you very much. My name is Benedict Hagas. I work for Siemens here in Brussels. I have a question to EDF. 
Uh, actually, two questions, if that's okay. The first one is on the vehicle-to-grid element. How do you see, um, how do the, does the market need to be organized so that actually people can monetize on the investments? Will it be more on a kilowatt hour base, kilowatt, or what's, what's the, the, the model here? And the second one is also, I read that you are investing more into hydrogen issues, and I just wanted to know a little bit more where you're going there. Thank you. Thank you. So about, about V2G, we, we really believe that there is um, um, a real opportunity for, for, for the business there and for the, for the fin final customer. But as I explained, um, it's really a cross-business between the car industry and between the electricity industry. Because obviously, V2G is a way to generate flexibility on the, on the grid. And the, the key question would be how um, the value of this um, additional flexibility is going to be paid and who is going to take a part of it. Is it going to be the car manufacturer? Is it going to be the electricity company? Is it going to be the final customer, the final user of the, of the car? This has to be defined. It also requires investment, investment on the car manufacturer side. Probably you know that at the moment, only a few number of vehicles, of electrical vehicles, have V2G capability. Uh, so it's additional cost for the, for the car manufacturer and then for the final, final customer. And we also need to develop all the platform in order to be able to manage all that and to, say, and to sell the, the, the corresponding flexibility on the, on the market. So it's, it's a long way. We, we are pushing a lot of uh, demonstrator, uh, proof of concept, uh, minimal viable product at the, at the moment. And in our mobility plan, we, we have decided to, to build a, a joint venture with a, a US company, a small startup called NewV, uh, working in, in California in order to, to raise this sort of activity. By the way, Nuvi is already working in Denmark at the, uh, at the moment, probably you, you, you know, and they have a, a real experience in that, in that respect. About hydrogen, to, to answer very, very fast, um, we, we believe that there is also a real future in hydrogen, but in a decarbonated hydrogen. Uh, let, let me give you some figures. Uh, at the moment, uh, the global industry worldwide is uh, using 60 million tons of hydrogen. So the global industry for, for chemistry, oil and gas, um, uh, glass manufacturing. So the total volume in the world is 60 million tons of uh, hydrogen, so huge volume. This hydrogen is uh, mainly generated through steam methane reforming, so cracking the molecule of methane and, of course, generating, emitting a lot of CO2. The value is for one kilo of hydrogen, you generate 10 kilo of CO2. So it means that those 60 million of <coughs> hydrogen which are used by the industry generate 600 million tonnes of CO2 worldwide, 600 million tons. So I don't know the, the value of total emission of each European country. I know the one of France. The total emission for France, all sources, is 400 million tons. <coughs> so you see 600 million tons, 400 million tons. If a part of this hydrogen could be generated by electrolysis, mm. it would be a huge step 
in decarbonization. And so we, we want to step in. EDF has decided to, to step in. Hmm. It really, it's really necessary to invest in innovation in that because the price of electrolysis, of hydrogen issued by electrolysis is higher than the one issued by uh, steam methane, uh, thank you, by steam methane reforming. So we need to innovate. We need to work on electrolysis. Uh, in order to make it possible. And perhaps in this respect, we, we, we need some help from the, from, from the EU to stimulate uh, this, uh, this innovation. And what kind of help do you want? <clears throat> well, big project, big, uh, big project, um, big demonstration project to make it feasible, to demonstrate it. You have different technologies of electrolysis. Exactly. Uh, so <clears throat> let's try them. Mm. Good point, and something we should note down for you know what, what we should ask for for the next commission. There was, I will come to you, sir. There's a gentleman here. Where are the mics? And Kirsten, then I'm going to turn to you after these next two contributions. Uh, Robert Brown, Macarius Society. Unintended consequences and wider thinking. Biogas takes away carbon that can be used to replenish soils. Um, and also we have a real problem with sewage. Maybe we should be looking at vacuum technology collection because of um, antibiotic resistant strains going into the environment, pharmacological products. Collection at source and hypothermophilic composting. And, and also connected with that is, is need for, for nitrates, need for ammonia, which are all either short in supply or energy demanding. So, Your question? Is, is, is should we not take into account wider implications wider. when looking at biogas as, as an energy source? Okay. And, right. and, and just very quickly, I wasn't going to ask this, but why not photosynthetic or bacterial genetic engineered organisms? Enzymes are supremely efficient for hydrogen production. Okay, Luke. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, it's clear that, that when we talk about biogas and the way we produce it, it's, it's, it's to be quite selective on the feedstock we use for it and then see that it's the right ones being used, not being in competition with other. And that, there's no doubt about that. What we uh, do see is that with the new technologies coming up, like the paralysis of, 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 uh, of wood, for example, which we are testing now in the south of France, we, we get some very efficient ways to get to biogas, uh, which will not be only uh, biogas, natural gas version, but also the, the, the hydrogen that can be produced with that, with the capture of, of quite some of the CO2. So we, f we see quite some benefits, but, but I totally agree that, that the selection of the feedstock is one of the crucial elements, and that uh, waste and, and sewage should, should indeed be considered as well as a potential source for these biogas. And I wonder if, what the role is of nature-based solutions in this one, you know? Is it the thing that we're not really looking at and exploring sufficiently? Uh, because it, it could be the 21st century renewable, fun, fun, actually, yeah, at, at one, one stage. But perhaps think about that. You might want to come back on that. Gentleman there has been patient, <clears throat> in the middle there. Again, briefly, if you can. My question is, uh, as we recently see a drastic change in local election in Brussels and Berlin also, so uh, we know that how politics is important in climate change. It's like if you don't, you said no, it's like taking a gin out of cocktail. So it's not possible. So, I mean, I wonder, as the Green Party has, a, I mean, a majority seats in Brussels and around the Belgium, but uh, also the anti-climate po uh, political parties also com coming into power in uh, uh, Germany also, like AFD. They are uh, 
too uh, anti-climate like uh, Trump and USS style. So I wonder what it w would be uh, in situation in uh, Europe if parties like this come into power. Thank you. Who'd like to have a go at that one? Sarah. I will. I won't, I won't comment on uh, European uh, politics, but just looking around the world, we're seeing uh, similar concerns. Mm. I think one of the things that we see as a difference is what we've highlighted in our report. And, and I mean, I'll just highlight, this is the executive summary, the full report's online for free. The title of our report is Unlocking the Inclusive Growth Story of the 21st Century. Mm. And our commissioners and our, and our partners are all very clear, this is the growth story of the 21st century, and we're trying to position it that way. This is not just about climate. It's actually first and foremost about better lives, about better growth, about more sustainable pathways for development, for jobs, for health, for the future. And that is something which everyone can get around. It's not a partisan issue. It's not something about the left. It's actually, it's about better quality growth, higher, um, higher growth paths, but also ones that uh, lead to less inequalities, uh, which are bringing everyone along. And so if we're able to position it first and foremost in that way, this is something which should appeal to all, from the conservatives, from those who are strong Helen, on the business. Helen, if I can stop you a second. Yeah. With the growth of kind of populist nationalist movements, especially in the East and elsewhere across Europe, um, not putting, you know, notwithstanding what happens elsewhere in the world, but with that growth, the narrative is about um, terror, migration, right. and, and sovereignty. Um, how do you convince those political leaders that, of your story? Because this aligns exactly with that as well. And I think one of our challenges is Far too often we talk about climate as an environmental issue, as something we need to do and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be costly. It's not. But you talk about things like sovereignty, right? Right now, most countries, many countries, are very heavily dependent on oil imports or other energy imports. Indeed. Doing it locally, if you're able to do that with renewable energy, where, I mean, everybody talks about what coal resources they have, but when you look at what solar or what wind resources, I'm from Scotland, the rain resources, I mean, we have incredible natural resources we can draw on. So doing it locally, you no longer become dependent on those imports. You talk about security and migration. Mm. There's an absolutely terrifying report out of the World Bank which looks at the impacts of climate change on internal migration and international migration. And, and it's scary. I mean, exactly. as we have more climate change, that's exactly. leading to more migration. Indeed. So Indeed. if you're able to take this growth path, it's one which will be the better one for the future. So it's almost reframing the story rather than reacting to the populism, which is, I think, an important point that yeah. you were just making. And on that note, I want to turn to you, Kristen, um, if I may. Last but not least, but I want to spend the next kind of session, next time that we have on, you know, really hunkering down on what aspects of system change need to take place, but actually, how do we catalyze and redesign the system if that's not too bold an ambition? Over to you. Thank you very Sorry much. for the hard question. No, no, no. It is the question. So it is the it's question. A, it's a good question to ask. Um, I think my immediate response would be, we've heard a lot mentioned about innovation. Um, we've heard references to business model change. We've heard references to the sort of deep technological shifts we need. I think the, the challenge is we need to reflect on what are we asking for. When we say innovation, what do we mean? When we ask for innovation, what do we get? And is that actually what we need to solve this particular problem? And my observation, working within an organization that supports and funds and enables innovation for both mitigation and adaptation, 
we have seven, eight years of learning at the defaults that are baked into our assumption about what mm. innovation is, which is that it's a version of commercialized invention, mm. very often focused on single point solutions that are technological. Because it's wired to the market picking up solutions and turning them into commercial propositions, it defaults to tried and tested and reliable outcomes, which means we default to incremental solutions. Mm. So interestingly, we have a model of innovation that has got us locked into mm. incremental change, assuming that our entire economic market-driven capital-based system will get us there if we can just flood it with enough solutions to make change happen. Mm. And we know from what we've seen over the last 10, 20 years, that is simply not going to happen. Not the case, yeah. So we need a different model. We need a model around systems innovation. We need a model that understands that the essential problem here, I think as we've heard from many people, is social. It's not economical. It's not technological. It is social. We do have technological solutions. We need to work out how do we enable communities to understand those solutions and demand them. It's not the single products that are driving the problem, it's the product embedded in the entire value chain. But more importantly, it's the underlying assumption about what we put into the design of product that is part of our challenge. The notion that it's okay to link prosperity to consumption, that consumption is a virtue, that that therefore makes it forgivable to waste and to design for obsolescence, because that supports prosperity. Our challenge in terms of innovation is how would we rewire the system of assumptions around what prosperity is that makes it something that is more coherent with a notion of planetary boundaries and a notion of what sustainability is. So for example, in our expectation, what we're trying to do is now shift the entire um, uh, body of work that we do from supporting single point solutions to supporting systemic solutions, which means a couple of things. It means asking for innovation that takes into account the properties of systems to change themselves. And by that I mean blockchain solutions, decentralized ledger technology that allows us to think about, or distributed ledger technology that allows us to think about the accumulative effect of distributed decision-making and design for it. Not thinking of that as a single technology solution, but thinking about it as a stack that goes from the sensors that we <coughs> put into the world around us that allows us to notice what's happening in the environment, connect that up to a distributed ledger that allows us to see and create a register uh, publicly for those effects and for the choices that we enact around them, layer in smart contracts on top of that, which allows us to automate some of the decisions that we felt we were able to create a contract around, and then add artificial intelligence in the mix so that we can learn faster than the speed of change. That whole suite of technologies gives us the opportunity to think more systemically and to act more systemically. If I give you an example, um, one of the projects that we're working on is um, is around a relationship between smallholding farmers producing grain, particularly meat, uh, wheat and maize, uh, across the world, and large fast-moving consumer goods companies who've got a problem around volatility of supply. Because if they procure wheat and maize from single big farming lots, and those are hit by a big storm, they lose an entire, they have a massive hole, both risk and capital-wise, as well as provision-wise. 
So enabling, here you have a solution where enabling a virtuous relationship between smallholding farmers to grow small lots in highly distributed ways. The register is using a blockchain to register the provenance of seed from those smallholding farmers, which creates a working capital arrangement which is more attractive to the investors in the big fast-moving consumer goods who are buying from those sources. And you can enable the entire lot to create an aligned set of interests between the providers of capital, the underlying risk takers, the farmers themselves, the financiers of the farmers, and the, in, the technology going into producing climate smart seed in that way. Those kinds of solutions that are taking, asking us to look at the multi-dimensional properties of the things that we use, the material world, and the multi-dimensional properties of economic design, that instead of looking for a single, we heard earlier about the problems of linear thinking when it comes to innovation design and economic design, that ask us to think in much more inherently complex and multidimensional ways around the way we redesign our system. That's the kind of innovation I believe we need. That's a bold plan, if I may say. Um, but how do we stop politicians and others who don't see the art of the possible and see you as a kind of a author of a sci-fi novel, what you've described potentially? Uh, and that's not to reduce what you're saying at all, because actually what you're saying is extremely bold. Because on the one hand, you're locating where the, pro the problem is in terms of how do you create behavioural change, fundamental behavioural change, and what you have to do is go completely to the local and local systems uh, and in, use the power of digital to really kind of um, pervade the whole system around it. Uh, the, you know, the stack that you described really, really well. Is there anywhere that there's, there's someone you know, saying to you, that's absolutely great, let's go for it? So there are many, uh, I don't know whether anyone clearly saying that's absolutely great, let's go for sure. it. It's the decision makers <clears throat> or, and I, in my experience, that's both organize, uh, large organizations, mm. large corporates, cities, uh, procurement officials, regional governments, national governments, and communities themselves. Mm. In fact, one of the most inspiring uh, com uh, aspects of what we do is working with edge communities who are already adopting and making change happen. Um, the core of it, I think, is around enabling a couple of things, and perhaps I'll link that to the conversation on policy earlier. Mm. Uh, enabling extreme experimentation and regulating at, regulating at the end. So really thinking about accepting, we are dealing with uncertainty. We may think we've got answers to both what the problems are and what the solutions are, but we've never tried to design the entire planet of social behavioral interactions. And we've never been able to do that politically at that kind of a scale. So for us to do it now, we're dealing with structural inherent uncertainty, mm. which means we need a portfolio effect. We need to design multiple parallel experiments and accept that every one of them is going to be a risk, but that the combination of the entire spread and very diverse possibilities traveling together will help us learn. And it's the speed of learning that we're going to have to regulate around. Mm. So creating sandboxes, taking a leaf Indeed. out of the book of the financial services Absolutely. crisis setting up regulatory sandboxes that allow us to experiment with technical solutions in agriculture, food, forestry, land use, core materials production, urban construction, um, the ways in which we handle consumption and behaviors around consumption, and then quickly learning across those. And there are examples of that really now beginning to happen. In, in Europe? In Europe, uh, in Asia, in the States, actually everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's a question of what question are you asking? I suppose the issue is, because one of the, uh, it, 
draws me to, we recently brought out a publication on scaling digital disruption. And one of the recommendations we're making, we've made in that, is that Europe should create a mega sandbox, you know, of uh, multiple investment streams that are linked, but enables extreme experimentation, you, as you describe it, but actually let multiple dimensions of innovation take place. But where the public sector money is, is about patient capital and risk uh, risk-taking at the front and end. And procurement. And procurement, but it's also making sure you, you, you ex accept the risk-taking and the private sector takes on the scale responsibility, for example. But in terms of the public sector appetite for risk, I'm just not sure whether that's, it's there. So perhaps let me add one, one element in, which is a, a thing I notice is missing. I come from Australia where you have been working in insurance for years, where you watch multiple events, you know, floods, storms, sea surges, hailstorms, hail fires, all happening at the same time. And one of the things that you learn from that is not forgetting to calculate in the effect of panic. As we start to have crops fail, and storms happen, and sea level rise, and fires, and as they mm. begin to happen at scale in ways that are correlated, we're going to panic. And when we panic, we do not use the highest forms of intelligence that we know how to use socially and individually. Mm. So one of the things that I think we need to think about as policymakers or as innovation practitioners, as decision makers, is two things. How can we prepare ourselves for the kind of catastrophic event response that is quick and agile and distributed Indeed. and allows <laughs> us to learn? And just remember, the risks we will take by experimenting with social, behavioral, and economic change are significantly less than the risks we are running to our core business models, to our profit lines, to our supply chains, and to our housing stock. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, on that note, questions or queries? Re reactions, responses to what you've heard? Are you, are you in agreement with what you're, he you're hearing? Gentleman here in the front. Thank you, Peter Bocek with the European Chemical Industry. Mm -hmm. uh, I found Kirsten's uh, presentation highly inspiring. Um, the question is, how do we trigger this sort of innovation? Mm. Mm. Um, here in Brussels, we are at a place where uh, the place is known for bold target setting percentages of greenhouse gas reductions, energy savings, and so on. Sometimes uh, um, not supplementing, but rather um, uh, in opposition to each other, these targets. So for us, for the chemical industry, um, coming to a low-carbon technology will require more energy, more electricity, and therefore uh, meeting these targets will be difficult because we, then we are in a dilemma. We want to reduce emissions, this will cost energy. So how do we trigger this sort of innovation other than with these kind of target setting? Thank you. My uh, response to that is, is an experiment in itself. It's one of the things that we are actually doing with the entire climate knowledge innovation community activity. And that is to um, embed the work, for example, that the chemical industry is doing, green chemistry, the chemical changes in core technology solutions into a context where there can be complementary cash flows and complementary risks, and where there are possibilities to experiment with one, well, or work on one kind of innovation initiative that requires a higher surge of demand, 
to find the solutions that will enable that higher surge of demand at a net zero uh, effect and run the lot at together. And I think there are a lot of examples now, um, something like the organization called zeri.org, of looking at how you do three-dimensional business model design that allows for that. Uh, portfolio, a portfolio approach to running innovation allows you to put many experiments or many innovation initiatives together in such a way that you can mm. look at the load balancing of the whole lot and determine how much time will we give the excess or the extra energy required to generate and find the solutions versus the outcome of that net zero response. I think it is a question of, of the design both of the individual initiatives, but more importantly, the design of the relationships amongst the things that we're doing together. And that is about every single innovation actor and innovation platform out there beginning to design for a different way of doing innovation and supporting innovation. Of course, one of the biggest challenges that I see all of us facing is designing the capital that would mm, support exactly. that kind of work. And beginning to crowd in different combinations of patient capital, risk taking, higher risk taking capital, hybrid solutions, public private money, tax incentives, mm. to begin to allow that kind of non linear combination. Absolutely. I would like to, to express strong support from NG on this kind of initiatives because this is what we need. We need free and open playing grounds where we can test things which are not linked to one technology or one solution, but which are going with a mission, a solution we need to find, which will be technology, but connected to social impact, etc. And this is what we are really lacking and where we want to be part of and want to play our field in. And, and we were referring a little bit at a certain moment to the DARPA, the defense uh, agency approach which was followed in the US as such a good idea. You have a, a budget, you have a multi-annual approach, you have an open risk-taking, which we are lacking a little bit maybe in Europe. Mm. So this is another way where, where we think that we should enter in this kind of solution. So we are very pleased to hear that uh, this demand is there. I suppose the issue is about trying to find examples where this can be shown to work, where you get public-private hybrid capital to be in a place where it's clear about the respective roles they play uh, and actually then seed the innovation that you need. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure if any of you have come across a very specific example in that way. I can draw one from the UK, but I don't think it's transferable. But what, do you have any particular example you can think of that actually brings those different roles of capital together in a way that they understand where the risk sharing, the risk burden lies and the scale happens? Yes, so I could give an example. Again, it's an, it's an agriculture. Well, it's a it's a mixed example. But agriculture is, is actually one of the way one of the areas where this is okay. this can move fast. Uh, it's an example of working with small holding farmers in this case in Africa, uh, in Tanzania, um, which is about to move to another 12 uh, nations in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's a combination of uh, satellite information. Um, climate smart agriculture and algorithms to help decision making about what to plant and where, which is expensive. It's financed by a line of credit from local banks. The risk of assuming that credit, which is usually borne by farmers, mm. is taken away by a line of insurance, which is a private insurer, and a mixture of some, so the banking is partly state owned, the private insurer is, is, is private and taking that, kind of deflecting that right up a value chain which is anchored in European supermarkets who are guaranteeing 10 years of demand because what they get is lower volatility of supply and better quality outcomes. And then the last element we're exploring at the moment is adding in some of the, building on some of the research on the, what happens when you grow plants under solar panels, tilted, 
because the microclimate created under the solar panels yeah. rehumidifies the soil. So there's a cash flow directly to the farmer, uh, which can be financed by the whole thing. And that has a mixture of funding coming from development banks, funding coming from private institutions, and funding coming from high net worth, and the funding that is in the demand mm. secured by supermarkets. Excellent. Good. Absolutely, that's what, you know, it's about hearing stories like that, that you think about what's possible for the EU to actually um, um, do differently and better. On that note, I want to wrap up this session and ask the same question that I asked the last session, uh, panellists, and that was that you, I explained to those of you who remember our citizen poll, which said very clearly citizens, uh, what they want of the next mandate or the next uh, European Commission is security, sustainability, <coughs> and prosperity, and we heard how some people would see that as actually the one and the same thing. Helen, what would be your one thing that you'd say to uh, the new commission if they had to do this one big thing? What would that be? Thanks very much. I mean, I think we've already covered well that these three are all interlinked, and I think based on that, what I would say is take the policy handbrake off. What we're seeing is that markets, cities, investors, others are starting to move ahead. And in many cases, it's actually the policies that are slowing them down. Mm -hmm. So uh, two specific elements on this. One, we still have something like $337 billion in subsidies to fossil fuels around the world every year. Mm -hmm. That's just insane. Why do we have that? That's got to move. And linked to that is putting the price on carbon. Europe's doing pretty well. I think what most Europeans don't know is that actually the rest of the world is already moving ahead and starting to outpace you on carbon pricing. Mm. We have in Latin America, in Canada, in mm. Singapore, elsewhere, we've got carbon pricing moving. So take the policy handbrake off and, and stop uh, um, you know, hesitating on where you need to go as Europe. The second one linked to that policy handbrake is radical transparency. And this links very much into the digitalization. We're seeing that with Global Forest Watch and what you can do with that transparency in terms of supply chains. Kristen gave a fantastic example mm -hmm. in, in agriculture. That helps. But the other area that's really essential right now is the financial sector. Mm. And if we take the recommendations of the task force on climate-related financial risks, mm -hmm. uh, around disclosure of these risks, mm -hmm. investors, if they understand the risks of high um, carbon investments, if they can understand those risks, um, they will make different decisions. They'll make different decisions and shift and so, the capital flow. Radical transparency. Radical transparency. Thank you. Luke. Well, I I think we're quite convinced that the future for companies, they will be judged on their capacity to, to have not only a view on environmental uh, impact, but also on societal impact of their decisions. And they will be judged on that, not only by the people, but also by the market. Mm -hmm. And we think that, that, uh, that, that we would like to push all decisions forward in a sense that harmonious progress makes sense. And it is really a harmonious way of developing things in the future. So this is what we strongly believe in and we would like to advise uh, to, to, the, to the Commission if they, they, they start taking their decisions to take into account all these impacts. And we think that for a company we don't even have the choice because it will be influencing uh, how people see us and how, whether they choose for us or for somebody else. And that will be with a digital way of, uh, of communicating uh, a very risky business as well if you don't live up to that uh, expectation. So what would, what would be your one to ask then? For every decision they take, take into account the harmonious progress on the different levers future okay. forward. All right. Bernard. Well, I think that um, there are two different levels. First, at the, at the EU level, I think the key, the key element is really to give the, the right direction. 
The right direction is, again, carbon pricing. That, that's really set the goal for all the economic players and define that different policy. And then the, the second item is trust. Trust. I mean that all these global change is very complex. Uh, it needs a rupture project. It needs uh, new ways of thinking. Let's trust the people, the different organizations, the local government to manage all, all that, given this, this direction about the carbon okay. pricing. And last, uh, rupture projects are really difficult, or risky projects are really very difficult to handle by uh, business, by companies, uh, because they are too risky. And so I, I think we need the support of, of EU in that respect. Which builds on your earlier point about it, is that enable big demonstration projects to happen across yeah, the EU. Yeah, for example, uh, Kristen mentioned this question of PV and mm -hmm. agriculture. Yep. We at the moment are experimenting in order to, to save, you know, the patient. But well, it's a completely new thing. Kirsten? Handbrake, so a policy, I would push it further to an opportunity there and to radical transparency possibilities. Mm. I think that the, what the Welsh around intergenerational responsibility is a thing. 